You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So one of the features, one of the many features that distinguish an adult or young person from a child is the ability to think ahead and plan accordingly. A child is so often consumed in the moment. You know, we've all seen the videos of experiments where a cookie is placed in front of a child and they say, if you wait five minutes, you'll get a second cookie. And most of the time, the child cannot resist. Maturity comes when the future is not only acknowledged and considered, but fundamentally affects how one thinks and acts in the present. This holds true also for the Christian life. We are assured in God's word that he will always accomplish what he has purposed. He will save from every nation, tribe, people, and language. He will make all things new. He will come again for his people. And as his people, we grow in spiritual maturity as we increasingly think and act in light of these truths. This is what the book of First Thessalonians has been teaching us. We are to be ready for our guaranteed glorious future by being holy now. We've seen that an active hope in this promise fuels a life that is pleasing to God. And in our passage today, we will be challenged to see a couple more ways in which future realities are to influence our present. So with that, I'll read our passage for today. I'll, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, from 13, verse 13 to 20. And the words will also be projected on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I titled this sermon, Seeing with Faith, and we'll see our passage in three sections. We'll see faith in reception, we'll see promised wrath in condemnation, and we'll see promised joy in hopeful expectation. So let's start with the first point, faith in reception. 
Paul has just finished conveying to the Thessalonians his great parental affection for them. He was like a a gentle mother and a guiding father to his young spiritual children. And for those of you who are parents, you know that raising children is hard work. Yet as Paul brings the Thessalonians before God in prayer, his heart is filled with gratitude for a reason that would bring joy to any Christian parent. The Thessalonians, upon hearing his gospel proclamation, received it and accepted it as the very words of God. We saw earlier in chapter 1 that they received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit must be at work for unbelievers to receive God's word as it truly is. To see Paul's words not just as interesting human wisdom, but as God's very word, his self-revelation. Paul's words, the, the words of men, they are not deserving of any attention. But the Spirit opens the spiritually dead ears of unbelievers to hear God's gospel call and to respond with faith. Paul, as, as he so often does, once again draws our attention to God's grace in the lives of his chosen people. Now, what is this word of God that Paul would have said to them? We see in Acts 17 that he reasoned with the Thessalonians from the scriptures. He proved that it was necessary for Jesus, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead. He would have told them of the one true God who came in Christ to save his people from their sins. He he would have told them of salvation from certain death, of having true and eternal life that was found in no one else but Christ alone. This saving message was not only received audibly by the Thessalonians, it was also personally appropriated, applied in their lives. That's that's the subtle nuance we get from the words received and accepted. The gospel didn't just initially catch their attention it began to change their their thoughts, their desires, and their actions. We see it is at work in those who continue to believe. And that's the power of the gospel. The message of free grace and new spiritual life changes the mind, changes the affections. It's an ongoing source of divine power in the lives of believers. It causes people, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, to do works motivated by faith, to labor because they, they have experienced the love of God, and to hope in what is promised them in God's word. God's word enlightens the eyes and makes wise the simple. God works powerfully in his people by his word. Paul then further clarifies in verse 14 what it looks like for the Thessalonians to receive and appropriate the word. It is evidenced by their suffering for the gospel. In chapter 1, we saw that they imitated the Lord and Paul, and now they also imitate the churches in Judea. The first Jewish Christians were rejected by their own people. They, They scoffed at the idea of the crucified Jesus being their conquering Messiah. So also the Gentile Thessalonians were ridiculed by their own people. 
we see that the gospel demands a change of allegiance. It demands the entirety of one's life. And the Thessalonians were content to lose their social reputation, to risk verbal and even physical abuse for their newfound faith. I want you to notice how how Paul pastors the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering for the gospel. He reminds them that they are experiencing this together as as a collective local gathering of God's people. It's it's often lost in the English, but verse 14 is all in the plural. You all suffer. He also joins them in their suffering by calling them brothers. Addressing them as, as brothers and sisters becomes more than just a rhetorical device to break up sections of his letter. He is saying, brother, sister, I am with you in this. They had watched him get driven out of their city for preaching the good news. He too had experienced suffering for the gospel. He he widens their perspective by showing them that other churches are experiencing the same persecution. Their situation is not unique, but suffering is normative for God's people. But most of all, he reminds them who they belong to. He reminds them of their corporate identity. Each one of the churches are the churches of God in Christ Jesus. They are united in their suffering with the Father and the Son and indwelled by his Spirit. In times of of trial and testing, we, we too need timely reminders to bolster our faith. Faith was granted to us to believe in the gospel. And and so many of you, whether whether here or or, or online, have also received the word of God as what it truly is by the faith given to you by the Spirit. And I thank God for that. And it is the same faith, that same faith that makes effective the power of the gospel as we continue to experience suffering for the gospel. We are to continue in that faith as the word of God continues to work in us who believe. Now we know that God will complete the work he began in his people. But there are some who vehemently oppose him and his plans. In our next verses, we will see Paul encouraging believers that no one is going to get away with opposing God's plan. So that brings us to our second point, wrath in condemnation. As we read these verses, at first glance, Paul seems to be very harsh with the Jews. He he seems to to paint the Jewish people black with too broad a stroke. But as we look closer, we can begin to understand his his not-so-political correctness. So if you look, at me, look with me at verse 15, we see that Paul lays a, a series of accusations against the Jewish people. It's, it's not a pretty picture. We see that in the Old Testament, they had killed God's appointed agents of self-revelation, the, the prophets. God had sent them to warn and, and call his people back to him, even after they strayed again and again. They had promised covenant faithfulness to him, but they kept going back on their word. 
And even the kings themselves, they incited the people to to worship foreign gods. They they killed the priests and they killed God's prophets. But what takes first importance, as we see in this list, is that they killed Jesus. The unusual word order in the original really highlights the, the enormity of what they did. It reads, the Lord they killed, even Jesus. It was no mere man that they murdered. They put to death the Lord himself come in the flesh. We see that they also persecuted Paul and his co-workers, not only in Thessalonica, but throughout Paul's missionaries' journeys. They, they would stir up the crowd against Paul. Paul, if you remember, he would always go to the synagogue first, And then the Jews would stir up the crowd and often force him out of the city or result in him being beaten. And their actions put an end to the gospel proclamation in those cities. As we keep reading, the the list goes on. They, They displease God, shown in the way they mistreat his messengers. And to bring it all together, they are opposed to all mankind. How is this possible? We see in verse 16 that they prevent Paul from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for their salvation. As people discover their need for a savior through the proclamation of the gospel, they have the opportunity to respond to God's grace in Christ. They can be saved, delivered from the wrath of God, called into God's kingdom, and given future hope. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But these Jews, they were hindering gospel heralds from delivering their life-saving message. It was an act of hostility towards all of mankind. They were opposing God's plan and mission to bring the nations to himself. So maybe, maybe now we can begin to, to understand a bit of Paul's exasperation. You know, if we heard that, that someone had blocked a fire exit from children escaping from a burning building, we would probably also feel some righteous anger. And Jesus himself, he also strongly reprimands the Pharisees during his own day for the same deadly crime. This is what he says in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus doesn't mince his words. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. But Jesus, as well as Paul, can take comfort in the fact that God will deal with them. At the end of verse 16, the result of these Jews opposing Jesus and the gospel, the result is that they fill up the measure of their sins. God forbears sin. Yes, we read that in scripture. For a time, it it seems as if he leaves transgression unpunished. But in his holy and loving justice, his wrath will fall upon those who oppose him at the appointed time. Paul has assured the Thessalonians in chapter 1 that Jesus delivers them from the wrath to come. 
But those Jews who have, who have filled up the measure of their sins will not escape God's judgment. Now, we might be tempted here to, to charge Paul with, with anti-Semitism, uh, hating his, really his own people. But we need to keep a few thoughts in mind. First, we, we need to see that Paul is he's directing his accusations at a specific subset of Jews, not, not the entirety of the, of the Jewish race. He, he limits his critique to Jewish opposition to God's mission. Second, we also need to consider what Paul says about the Jews elsewhere. In, in Romans 9, this is, this is what he says regarding his own people. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If it were possible, Paul would suffer punishment in hell so that his fellow Jews might be saved. And at the beginning of Romans 10, we again see that he indeed does love his own people. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He, he, he agonizes over the rejection of God, but still yearns for their salvation. And lastly, we need to see that his, his main concern in writing the letter is to encourage the church, encourage the believers, rather than condemn certain Jews. He wants them to see that they are in a long line of those who suffer for their faith. Far from this being a, a personal vendetta, Paul's perspective here is a theological one. As, as an apostle, he has been entrusted with the gospel for the Gentiles. So salvation is to, is to flow from God's chosen people to the nations. But these Jews, they have, they have plugged the pipes they, they reject God's living water and refuse to let others taste of its goodness. They prevent others from hearing a sobering reality. Whoever rejects God and his salvation, either by being born into sin or willful opposition to him, these people will one day come under the full wrath of God for their sin. If you're listening um, today on, online and you, are, and you are not yet a Christian, this is the situation you are facing. You, you, you probably aren't, I can bet that you aren't actively opposing churches or, or, or treating Christians around you poorly. You, you may even agree with, with Christian principles and, and see the goodness of community that churches bring. But my friend, if you, if you do not see the Bible as, as God's very words, if, if you have yet to place your trust in, in Jesus as your Savior from sin and the Lord over your life, then the just wrath of God will one day come upon you. Me and you, apart from salvation in Jesus, are condemned to eternity in hell away from God's good presence. So, so turn, turn to him, believe in his word that you are hearing right now and place your trust in Jesus. And it is my desire and prayer and the desire of our church that the Holy Spirit will give you the same gift of faith 
that he has given the Thessalonians and he has given us. Now, after encouraging the faithful and also warning the resistant, Paul returns to the theme of the dear relationship between himself and the Thessalonians. He wants to assure them that though he is not present with them physically, he desperately yearns to see them again. And this brings us to our final point in the last few verses, joy in expectation. Paul and his companions, they do everything possible to persuade the Thessalonians of their continued affection for them. You know, if a pastor today, he, he planted a church and just, just up and left for a long period of time without any communication to them, even, even the most understanding and, and dedicated members would start to wonder what's, what's going on. So Paul wants them to know, without a shadow of a doubt, their spiritual father and mother is in great anguish at their current situation. Look with me at verse 17. He says, but since we were, were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. We, we get the image of, of two people wrenched apart from each other while still, still clutching on to each other's hands. But the word Paul uses here is, is more grievous than this. He uses the word, he, he chooses the word orphaned from, orphaned from. Listen to how John Chrysostom captures Paul's emotion here. He did not say separated from you, not, not torn from you, which is, which is in fact our English tra- translation, nor, nor left behind, but orphaned from you. He sought for a word that might sufficiently show the pain of his soul. A child forcibly removed from its mother's arms. There is a deep sense of, of grief that accompanies, accompanies his absence. But even though they are apart in person, Paul reminds them that this is temporary. They are still very much in his heart, the center of his person. They are out of sight, yes, but they are not out of mind. He has made every effort to return to his beloved spiritual children. And to convey this, Paul, Paul strings together a series of words to show his sincerity. We, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire. The burning desire of Paul and his co-workers was to be with the Thessalonians in person, seeing their faces. Doesn't Paul speak for many of us today? I know he does for, for me. You know, we are, we are designed for, for community, and yet we are, we are now unable to enjoy this God-given gift to its fully, fullest earthly extent. You know, I get to see some of you, some of you sitting here in the, in the pews, um, some of you at our, at our prayer meetings and, and our tags or, or in other situations, but, but I miss being, around, being among my whole church family. hearing all of us singing praise to God together, celebrating the Lord's Supper all together, seeing and and hearing the the little hum of of little groups of encouraging conversations, seeing the children uh, run around and seeing people be, be prayed for and praying with 
each other. And, and I can't wait, um, and I can say with confidence, it's the same sentiment as, as many of you, I can't wait to be with all of you together again. Now Paul sees in his situation that a supernatural adversary is at work. His struggle was not against flesh and blood. He says in verse 18, we, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He sees that there is, is, is spiritual warfare going on and it's reflected in the word hindered. This word comes from, from the military. It describes a, a retreating army uh, tearing up and destroying the road to block the advance of the enemy. And what Paul realizes is that he sees that the devil has, has snuffed out Paul's repeated efforts and made it impossible for him to get back to his spiritual children. But even though, even though Paul could not fulfill his desires, he wants the Thessalonians to know the reason for his great longing to see them. He says in verse, verse 19, these are just really, really sweet and precious words. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you. We, we see again the, the lengthened time horizon that Paul sets his gaze on. At, at the final day, his, his apostolic ministry will be put to the test when Jesus returns. That day will come when, when God will come to judge the wicked and save the righteous. And his hope is that his labor will not be in vain. With joy, he anticipates the day when he will present the Thessalonian church to Jesus as a proof of his faithfulness. Like, like an athlete crowned with a victory wreath, he looks forward to boasting in the Thessalonians. But not boasting of his own achievements. He boasts in the Thessalonians themselves. Is it not you for you are our glory and our joy. His own ultimate joy is, is bound up with the well-being and the spiritual health of the Thessalonian church. He will glory in Christ's work of completing the work that he started in them. He will be rewarded with joy for continuing with them for, with their, for their progress and joy in the faith. He yearns to hear the words of every Christian, faithful Christian, and every pastor. The divine judge, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Paul helps them, and Paul helps us to focus on the ultimate and glorious realities that will sustain Christians in the present time. Now, how can we, how can we as God's people apply what we heard today in his word? How can we, like the Thessalonians, not only receive God's word, but also personally apply it as his redeemed people? Two ways for us to consider. Engaging with opponents. So we, we see that Paul's posture towards the Jews is instructive for us. 
How do we engage with those who rub us the wrong way, who have, who have diametrically opposing views from us or, or are even out to get us? How do we express what we think is, is righteous anger towards those who take advantage of the helpless, those who oppose true gospel ministry, those who preach a false gospel? How do we balance love for neighbor with distaste or even anger at their views and actions? We see that Jesus didn't hesitate to denounce the Pharisees. But Jesus also gave his life for people like them. He, he forgave them because they did not know what they were doing. Paul also, he didn't hesitate to call out the Jews. Paul, following Jesus' example, would gladly give up his life for his own people if they could be saved. So what about us? Ask yourself, ask one another some hard questions. Are, are we willing to give our time to listen and understand another's point of view? Or, or do we just disregard, cancel, and, and even slander them in person or online? Are we willing to give and commit time to pray for those who anger or persecute us? Do we bring our, our interpersonal grievances and deep hurts before the Lord in prayer, realizing that he is the final judge, expressing faith that he will preserve the righteous and judge the wicked on the last day? In Jesus and in Paul, we have an example of what it means to love those who persecute us. And in the spirit, we have the power to go and do likewise. And the second way we can apply God's word here is to see with faith. Now, it might seem that, you know, as we've gone through 1 Thessalonians so far, that, that Paul has, has really rosy glasses when he looks at the Thessalonian church. You know, so far he's, he's commended his own conduct. He, he also speaks of their, their sterling reputation and their, their godly example among the churches in the area. But as we will see in, in coming months, the church in Thessalonica, like, like any church, like, like our church, is not perfect. What gives Paul his, his optimistic outlook is seeing how the church will be perfected in glory one day. He sees his spiritual children with the eyes of faith, what they will be when Christ is perfectly formed in them. And this is what Pastor Tim has, 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 has reminded us many times and taught us that this is seeing each other cross-eyed. So ask yourself, are you seeing more of our church's faults or its beauty? Do the flaws in Christ's bride rise to the surface or are you able to see the radiance of her future Perfection. As we, as we share our lives, as we give of ourselves to each other, we realize that we are not all as put together as we want to be or want others to think. We all have issues. We all struggle with besetting sin. We will hurt one another as selfish sinners being sanctified. We will neglect to care for silent sufferers, or we may speak the truth without love to one another.
as, as we disciple and, and mentor one another, as we, as we raise our children, as we live as husband and wife and spiritual brothers and sisters, it can be so easy to be impatient with the pace of godly change in one another. But think, think in this way. Each of us, we get a front row seat to God's work in each other's lives. We, we, are, we are sitting beside the master potter, watching him mold his precious creation into the image of Christ. And we even get the privilege to shape one another, helping each other follow Jesus. And one day this process in each one of us will be complete. The, the, the seemingly lopsided, discolored lump of clay in front of you will one day be perfected to do what it was designed to do, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. This, this mindset, it will allow us to be faithful in prayer for one another, a lot of times for the same request over years and years. It will allow us to speak the same precious truths of scripture and the gospel to each other over many years. With the eyes of faith, we can rejoice not only for ourselves, but for one another, that God will complete the work he has started in each one of us for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, increase our faith. We know that it is impossible without faith to please you. Sustain our faith to believe in your unchanging word. Grant us faith to fight the flaming darts of the evil one, the doubts that so easily um, cause us to, to waver and doubt in you. We, we believe, but even so, we ask you to help our unbelief. Give us faith to see one another in light of the cross, in light of future glory. We trust in you, our faithful Father. We trust in you, Jesus, who are faithful and true. And we trust, Holy Spirit, that you'll produce faithfulness in us. We pray all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.